about six or seven years ago, I saw a TED Talk uh, video that brought back a flood of memories. TED, by the way, stands for Technology Entertainment Design. There stood on the stage a familiar-looking woman. She starts by saying, you're looking at a woman who was publicly silent for a decade. Later, she tells the audience what happened many years ago before she disappeared. Overnight, I went from a completely private figure to a publicly humiliated one. Worldwide, I was patient zero of losing a personal reputation on a global scale almost instantaneously. This is Monica Lewinsky. Seeing her in a TED Talk discussing cyberbullying and invasion of privacy felt like an odd mixture of disparate parts of my life, like my high school days merging with the world of social media in my mid-30s. I didn't walk away from the video agreeing with everything Lewinsky said, but it took me back to that moment when my view of Bill Clinton changed forever. Since I really started getting comfortable being an immigrant in mid-90s, Clinton was the first face I strongly associated with the President of the United States of America. So imagine my disappointment. That face was sullied forever in my mind. And in a similar way, when we think about David, the ideal king of Israel, we can't forget the scandal that marred him and his image. Even the writer of 1 Kings, who has a high regard for David, can't let it go. He writes in chapter 15, verse 5, David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not turned aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. I mean, even in the New Testament, the Spirit led Matthew to include in the genealogy in chapter 1, verse 6, David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. That's part of David's legacy forever. As we continue to follow the reign of David in 2 Samuel, we arrive at that infamous story of his adultery. This story is arguably the one people remember best, perhaps second only to his uh, victory over Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. In fact, it's that very familiarity that could lead us to read it with less critical eye, without searching for meaningful application in our lives. Yeah, I get it. Be sure to be actively engaged in battle. Don't look at women lustfully. Don't commit adultery. Don't cover up your sin with murder. Do come forward and fess up when confronted. Pay for the consequences of your mistakes. The list of moral imperatives and warnings goes on and on. Now, no doubt there are principles for sexual purity and repentance in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. We can learn from Uriah's character, David's failures, and Nathan's rebuke. I don't deny that. But over the years, I've revisited this tragic account and learned from others who preach from it effectively. One sermon that left an indelible impression on me many years ago was from a popular Christian leader named Paul Borden. Here's 
three key lessons, and there's a lot, but I'll just talk about three lessons I learned from him. First, it's best to read 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12 together. While it's clear there's a chronological break between chapters 10 and 11, 11 and 12 connects seamlessly. We see at the end of chapter 11 that the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. In direct response to that, God's going to do something about it. He sends Nathan in chapter 12, verse 1. Secondly, the parts of chapters 11 and 12 correspond to each other in what's called a chiasm. This is when words or concepts are repeated in reverse order. The result is like a mirror image, a palindrome, or an ascending and descending musical scale. The parts can be arranged in an ABC-CBA pattern or ABCD-CBA pattern as it is here. Now, applied to this story, we note how chapter 11 begins with David staying at home instead of going to Rabbah, and chapter 12 ends with him finally going to Rabbah, call these A1 and A2. In between these bookends, David and Bathsheba conceive a child, and then they lose that child and conceive another. Label these as B1 and B2. Continuing towards the center, David initially covers up his guilt, but then he eventually admits his guilt. Designate these as C1 and C2. Finally, at the center of the story is the prophet Nathan's confrontation of the king's great sin. We'll say that's the middle term, D. And that leads right up to the next third lesson from Borden. In that central section D, which starts at the actually very end of chapter 11, the second part of the final verse, 27B, I'll call it, to the middle of chapter 12, which we'll talk about next week. The text itself tells us David's main problem. And take a look at chapter 12, verse 7 through 12. Again, we'll talk about that more next week, but just a preview. These are the prophetic words spoken against the king. This is after Nathan told him the story of the rich man who stole the one and only ewe lamb of the poor man in the city. This is just when David was about to explode with anger against that greedy villain. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. He shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. There's a lot here. Now, not only does it relate to chapter 12 and today's passage, chapter 11, it's a preview of the terrible events ahead for David in Second Samuel. Well, now let's focus on verse 9. To do evil in his sight, you see there, takes us back to 
the very last part of today's passage, chapter 11, verse 27b, where it says, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. In fact, chapter 11, verse 27b more literally says, the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. So that matches verse 9 better. And what is this evil? It must be the commandment the king despised. By despising that commandment, he has despised God, as you see in verse 10. Yet the commandment there doesn't have one reference. Under one heading, you could sort all of the following, murder, adultery, abuse of authority. So to reduce the story of David and Bathsheba to just one sin issue, say lust, is not the best approach. I believe we have to zoom out and take a step back, not far, just up at verses 7 and 8 of chapter 12. See how the prophetic word begins. It's a recounting of all that God has done for David, his anointing as king, protection from Saul, his rise to power. Notice how the Lord says, if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Let me repeat that. If that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Here we have the overarching principle. This is where I think Paul Borden articulates well the big idea of 2 Samuel 11 to 12. David learns to accept what the grace of God gives him and what the grace of God does not. Again, David learns to accept what the grace of God gives him and what the grace of God does not. Now let me rephrase it to apply it individually. I must learn to accept what the grace of God gives me and what the grace of God does not give me. If we follow this line of thinking, David, the king of Israel, the most powerful man in the nation at that time, seems a lot more relatable. Surely at some point we felt like we deserve more. I deserve more. Maybe we even went out of bounds to get what we want. We're not satisfied with our career, our spouses, our children, our homes, our church, our friends. Thanks, God, but I want more, more, more. This isn't a midlife crisis. This is a faith crisis. This gets to the core, down to the root, reaches the source of David's deep heart issue. It's also often our deep heart issue. So that's my long introduction to a very well-known passage. There's more to say, but first let's read 2 Samuel 11. 2 Samuel 11. And if you're following along in your pew Bible, it's in page 218. 2 Samuel 11. It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. 
And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, so she sent and told David and said, I am with child. Then David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house and a gift of food from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. So when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Wait here today also, and tomorrow I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and next now, when David called him, he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And at evening, he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. So it was when while Joab besieged the city that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there were valiant men. Then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the people of the servants of David fell, and Uriah the Hittite died also. Then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war and charged the messenger, saying, When you have finished telling the matters of the war to the king, if it happens that the king's wrath rises and he says to you, Why did you approach so near to the city when you fought? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Was it not a woman who cast a piece of a millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you go near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent by him. And the messenger said to David, surely the men prevailed against us and came out to us in the, in the field. Then we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate. The archers shot from the wall at your servants, and some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, so encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah her husband was dead, she mourned for her husband and when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The outline of events in this chapter is fairly straightforward. There's David's interactions with Bathsheba in verses 1 through 5. Next is her husband Uriah in verses 6 to 13. Thirdly, there's the communications with Joab in the battlefield in verses 14 to 21. Finally, in verses 22 to 27, David and Bathsheba react 
the news of Uriah's death. In each scene, David makes an error. These mistakes come from his insatiable and simple desire for more than what God has already given him. At every turn, the king compounds the problem that he started. So with all that in mind, we have four ways that David despises God, his commandment, and the riches of his goodness. As for us, take David's bad example as four danger signs or warnings to heed, lest we also despise God and take his grace for granted. One, dutifully constrain your desires. Dutifully constrain your desires, that's verses 1 to 5. Two, attentively observe heroes of virtue. Attentively observe heroes of virtue, that's verses 6 to 13. Three, carefully avoid overreach of power. Three, carefully avoid overreach of power. That's verses 14 to 21. Four, solemnly reflect on your sins. Solemnly reflect on your sins. That's verses 22 to 27. First, dutifully constrain your desires. I chose the word dutifully because we begin this chapter with David not being in active duty. After the rainy months, it was customary for the kings to go out to battle in spring, and there was a major project to be completed. Recall that in the previous chapter, uh, 2 Samuel 10, Joab led the Israelite army against the Ammonites, who earlier humiliated David's servants. Joab and later David himself broke their northern Syrian allies. Abishai drove the Ammonite forces back into their royal city, Rabbah. What should have happened next was that David went out and swiftly conquered Rabbah, the end. But it turned, on to, turned into a long, drawn-out siege, warfare. It's likely that the king could have ended this war a lot sooner. But he stayed in Jerusalem. Maybe he wanted a break. Whatever the reason, he stayed home while other kings went out to war. That's one neglect of duty, which leads to others. And we know what happens next. I don't think it's weird that a king walked on the roof of his house in the evening. We expect his royal home to be bigger and taller than others. So he could easily look down on others from his elevated position. Some try to impute lustful motives to Bathsheba by blaming her for taking a bath where David can see her. I think that's hard to prove here. Based on the context, it's more likely that this bath was the final step in the ritualistic observation of Leviticus 15. In the middle of verse 4, you see she was cleansed from her impurity, that is, speaking of her menstruation, so she seems to be a law-observant person. Besides, as David acting on his impulses, making all the wrong moves here. He neglected his duty to fight wars as king. Now he neglects to fight the wars that rage within him. He does not dutifully constrain his desires. 
That leads to a betrayal of a neighbor, and not just any neighbor, mind you. Bathsheba's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Uriah, as we see in 2 Samuel 23, is one of David's best among a few dozens of warriors. Bathsheba's the daughter of Eliam, who's also on that list. And she's the granddaughter of Ahithophel, David's counselor. Bathsheba's not a complete stranger. She's someone in, in the inner circle of the king. But this entails irrelevant to David. He does not accept what the grace of God gives him and what the grace of God does not. So he transgresses. He moves forward. He runs right past the warning signs. He tries to cover up for his mistakes and ignores other reminders to repent. And one such signal to repent was a living person, a dramatic embodiment of godliness. Perhaps just as David had Uriah, Herod had John the Baptist, you've had individuals who convict you of sin just by the way they live. And that leads us to the next warning in this chapter, attentively observe heroes of virtue. So you see, David's plan is to get Uriah home so that he'd sleep with his wife. That way everyone would think that the baby in the womb is Uriah's, not David's. It's a simple plan. But David underestimates Uriah. The singularity of his fate contrasts with the duplicity of David's sin. In this chapter, it seems Uriah's the hero, and sadly, he's eventually the martyr. Not much is known about Uriah's background except his Hittite origins. The Hittites were descendants of Heth, a son of Canaan. There are indications that they were once prominent in what is today eastern Turkey and parts of Syria around the time of Exodus. But eventually they lost their distinct status. Uriah, Uriah seems to be a naturalized citizen of Israel, as of, of sorts, a, someone who is loyal to the nation and Yahweh. It's kind of like Ruth, David's own great-grandmother. So that's Uriah's background. What's at the foreground is Uriah's virtue. It's undeniable. This heroic, heroic warrior speaks and acts in ways that would embarrass David. After David hears the report of the war against Ammon, he says the trap, go down to your house and wash your feet. That is, take some paid time off with your wife. Here are some free vacation days. All expenses paid. But notice how often it says in this passage that Uriah did not go down to his house. The narrator in verse 9, the servant's report and David's question in verse 10, Uriah himself in verse 11 using a slightly different expression, and the narrator again in verse 13. And I wonder how the king received the words of verse 11. The ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Uriah refuses to do what David already did. 
sleep with the woman in a time of war. It's the Hittite who can't wait to go back and fight for Israel. Meanwhile, the king of Israel has been absent from battle. David tries to buy more time with the dinner feast and much wine. But Uriah, even in his drunken stupor, held to his principles. What a contrast to David. He, sober, with his mind clear as day, sinned against God. Every heroic act and word of virtue from Uriah reinforced David's pangs of conscience. David's running out of time and options. He feels trapped as plan A doesn't work. On to plan B. Really, David should abandon all his plans. He could still do the right thing, repent, admit his guilt, but he doesn't. He writes the letter to Joab. David moves forward because he doesn't accept what the grace of God has given him and what the grace of God has not. This deep-rooted spiritual problem leads to abuse of authority. And that leads to the next manifestation of David's sin and warning for us. Carefully avoid overreach of power. Unbeknownst to him, Uriah returns to the battle one last time. He carries in his own hand his own death warrant. I wonder if Joab read the note while Uriah was standing nearby. There's nothing in this letter that makes sense militarily or strategically. It's a devilish scheme, a hit job, a murderous plot. In effect, David's no better than Jezebel, who comes later, who wrote letters in Ahab's name, had Naboth killed, and got his vineyard for her husband. But unlike Jezebel's plot, David's plan does not work out exactly as planned. That's because it's hard to control the number of casualties of war and make sure that only one soldier dies in battle. So David's plan, as executed by Joab, claims more lives than he wanted. Once David overreaches with his power, once the letter's out of his hands, there's no going back. See, there's no such thing as managing or taming sin, especially the sin of speech. You're playing with fire. And if you're in authority, the same heat that sears the conscience can burn others. That's why we must be careful in the use of our powers as employers, parents, church leaders, whatever authority God gave you, paying special attention to what we say and write. James reminds us, see how great a forest a little fire kindles, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. Now, to someone questionable in character like Joab, David's talking his language. In response, Joab even anticipates a possible angry response from the king. He even anticipates that David would cite the Bible, specifically Judges 9, when Abimelech got too close to the city walls and left himself vulnerable. You can read about that there. 
Joab correctly guessed, though, that the king would be fine with some deaths as long as there's one death in particular, the death of one Uriah the Hittite. Even if Joab played his part, the hand that wrote that death sentence is the hand that overreached. You'll see in the final section of 2 Samuel 11 how David's bloody hand also affects his heart, his attitude towards sin. That leads to another warning. Solemnly reflect on your sins. Verses 22 to 24 seem like a boring repetition of Joah's message and rehashing of events. But notice what doesn't happen after the messenger finishes the report. There's no anger from David in verse 25. No wrath. Just a casual statement. The sword devours one as well as another. The man after God's own heart makes light of the evil he has done. The lives of the valiant men that were discarded. He says, go on, Joab, and intensify the attacks against Rabbah. In contrast to this cold, calloused response of David, there's the deep sorrow of Bathsheba, who's taken as his wife. The king thinks that he's in the clear now. He probably looks like a hero in the eyes of the world, caring for a widow, marrying her, and sharing a child together. But it's not the eyes of the people that matter. The thing that David had done was displeasing in the eyes of the Lord. It all started with him refusing to accept what the grace of God gives him and what the grace of God does not. And once he's out of those boundaries, there's transgression. Once he devalues grace, he cherishes sin. Now, as we think about the gospel, I ask you to solemnly reflect on your sin. Even if you've never been involved in an affair or orchestrated a murder conspiracy, you've at one point or another despised God and his commandments. You fail to be satisfied in him and his gifts. Your eyes have been green with envy. As you see, the grass looks greener on the other side. It's amazing that we can sit here and sin against our neighbors just by coveting and sin against God just by making idols of things. And without those sins resolved, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Rather, your part is in the lake, which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So what's the solution? How do we avoid hell? Well, Uriah can't be your savior. As brave, loyal, and virtuous as he is, he can't help you because he's dead. We heard it three times from three different mouths. There's another hero, and you must find him. Beyond this chapter, beyond First and Second Samuel, even beyond the Old Testament, of course, I'm talking about Jesus. Like David, Jesus is also the Lord's anointed. Unlike David, 
Jesus is perfectly God and perfect as man. He knew no sin. He was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Without blemish or spot, Christ Jesus committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Yet, like Uriah, Christ was betrayed by his neighbor, killed by the hand of the leaders. Unlike Uriah, Jesus knew fully that he would die. He, God's son and his holy servant, Jesus, died for sinners like David, you, and me. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He became our substitute, paying the penalty of sin that we should pay. But that was not the end. He resurrected from the grave and ascended to heaven after proving that he's truly alive. Someday he'll return to judge all mankind, and all who displease the Lord will be judged. There's no escape from divine justice. He sees through our secret plans and schemes. He knows them all. Our lust, murder, hypocrisy. So repent and admit what the omniscient God already knows. Trust in Jesus for forgiveness. You can be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There's nothing like having peace with God, enjoying the eternal life with him forever. Here's a passage that reflects on the gospel, Psalm 32, 1 through 5. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Selah, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. These are David's own words, actually. So I spoiled the ending for you. But I did that so that David's happy ending could be your happy ending. And not only can we claim today the assurance that our sins have been paid, we can live in victory over sin today, we can look forward to that day when we stand before God in perfection, perfection, 